you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 35 to the end of the chapter. That'll be our text for this morning. Mark 12, beginning in verse 35. And though our sister just prayed for us, let me offer another word of prayer uh, as we turn to God's word. Father, we pray that you would lift up Christ now. By your spirit, Lord, raise up your son. Let us behold him in your word. Behold his greatness and be drawn to him in faith. Let us rejoice, O Lord, at the great salvation that you have accomplished through Christ your son and that you have given to those of us who believe. We thank you that you're still saving, still rescuing men and women, boys and girls from the certainty of judgment bringing them into the kingdom of your love. I pray you do it again this morning. Rescue, save, redeem. We pray that you would strengthen us in faith. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. What does it mean to follow Jesus? I suppose that lots of people have. Lots of answers to that question. They may begin answering that question with a comment with something along the lines of, well, to me. To me, it means fill in the blank. What does it mean to you this morning to follow Jesus? How would you describe that if you were asked that question? If, if a coworker or a family member or a friend came up to you and said, hey, I hear you follow Jesus. What does that mean? What would you say? Well, it turns out that that is, at the same time, the most basic question that we could ask in Christianity and the most important question that we could ask in Christianity. It's not that following Jesus is the ABCs of the faith, and then you sort of go on to deeper things. It is the ABCs and the XYZs. It is what you do, not just when you're starting the Christian life, but it is, in fact, the definition of the Christian life, to follow Jesus. But not just any other way. Because if it's true, and it is true, that Jesus is Lord, well, we don't get to sort of design a custom road to following Jesus. If he's Lord, if he's ruler, if he's God, well, then he defines that. He tells us what it means to follow him. And our own faithfulness is tested by whether we follow the way he says or the way we say. In our text this morning, Jesus is going to make it clear what it means to follow him. And as I said, whether you are new to the Bible and new to Christianity or whether you've been following Jesus for 20, 30, 40 years, you, you never depart from this teaching. We never sort of get past this. This is something we always have to come back to, to renew our minds, to refresh our hearts, uh, to strengthen our walk, our following of Jesus. And so as we look at Mark chapter 12, I want to give us three lessons on following Jesus. If you're the note-taking type, this is my outline. Um, these are the main points of the sermon. Three lessons on following Jesus. Number one, don't just know about Jesus. 
actually know Jesus. Don't just know about Jesus. Actually know Jesus. Number two, don't be a hypocrite. Be genuinely godly. Don't be a hypocrite. Be genuinely godly. And number three, don't be partially invested. Be all in. Don't be partially invested. Be all in. In our text, we've got three scenes, and each of those points correspond to each of those scenes. We'll start out in the temple uh, where Jesus is teaching and asks the people a question. We'll continue in the temple as Jesus gives a warning about hypocrites. And then we will still be in the temple as Jesus makes an observation about how people give. Mark chapter 12, beginning verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Bless the Lord for his word. Three lessons on following Jesus. Lesson number one. Don't just know about Jesus. Know Jesus himself. Verse 35 says Jesus was teaching in the temple. He's been in the temple since Mark chapter 11, verse 27. Jewish religious leaders have been coming to him wave after wave, asking questions, trying to trap him, trying to trick him up. Mark chapter 11, verse 28, they asked him, who gave you authority to cleanse the temple the way he did? Mark chapter 12, verse 18, the, the Sadducees come with a trick question about marriage in heaven. Mark chapter 12, verse 28, a, an honest scribe comes to him and asks him what the greatest commandment was. Jesus answered all of them. And then he shut them down. You see the end of verse 34 there? The answer their final question, and no one else dared ask him any more questions. So the Lord has ended all of these questions, all of these fake questions from people who aren't genuine about wanting to know him, and now he's in the temple, and it's his turn to ask questions. And so he starts in verse 25 by asking, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of God? Now, as many of you will know, the scribes are the 
Jewish experts in the law. Their whole life and ministry and vocation was studying in Torah, studying the first five books of the Bible, and, and, and sort of expounding upon teaching what those books of the Bible meant. The temple was where they worked. Jesus is on their home court now questioning them about what the Bible teaches. Now, it's clear from the question that the, the scribes get at least two things correct. Number one, they believed in the Christ. They believed that there was such a figure called the Christ. Christ is a word. It's not a, it's not a last name. It's a title. It comes from the Old Testament. Uh, it means basically anointed one, a chosen one. It's the same idea as the Messiah. In the Old Testament, there had been this promise that God would send a Messiah, would send a Christ, a chosen one, who would rescue his people and bring God's kingdom. The scribes believed that God was going to send a Christ. And the scribes believed that the Christ was, notice in the question, the son of David. That's also a title that goes all the way back to the Old Testament, where God promised King David that he would raise up a descendant of David, a son of David, who would sit on David's throne and rule forever. And so by the time of Jesus, now these two things have began to be connected in the religious understanding of Jewish people, that the Christ and the son of David would be the same person. But it could be the case that their notion of what it meant to be the son of David basically stopped at the idea that the Messiah was a descendant of Jesus, or excuse me, of David, and that he was only human. They knew some true things about the Christ. They knew good things about the Christ. But they're still missing some bigger things about Christ. Fact, the Messiah is standing in front of them and they don't recognize him. They don't know that that's who he is. They know about the Savior. They don't quite yet know the Savior. Now, notice how Jesus responds to, uh, to them, to the question that he's asked rhetorically. He, he first refers to David himself. Uh, so he's not making something up out of thin air. He's going back to the writings of King David himself and calling David to be an authority in testifying to the identity of the Messiah. Then Jesus says that David himself in the Holy Spirit declared. That's important. It's a glimpse into how Jesus himself understood the Bible. That Jesus understood that the Bible was written by men, yes, like King David, but those men were speaking as the Holy Spirit, God, was working through them. So Jesus himself understands what we call as Christians the inspiration of the, of the scripture, that God is speaking himself through human agents who are writing down the very words of God. So when Jesus reads the Psalms, he understands that he's reading God's word. This is how we should read the Bible. Not like it's a book of men and men's ideas, but it is actually containing the, the thoughts, the teaching, the very word of God himself. One of the guys who was there in this scene named Peter, some years later, later wrote a letter. And in Peter's letter, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, he tells us no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Then he explains but that men spoke from God 
as they were moved along by the Holy Spirit. Where did Peter get that from? Got it from Jesus in scenes like this one, where he says, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared. So he's bringing all of the authority of God's word, all the authority of King David and, and God's prophecy to David to this, to this question, to this quote. And then he quotes, as Pastor Tim read earlier from Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until uh, I put your enemies under your feet. The Lord said to my Lord, that's David speaking, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, in ancient Judaism, Psalm 110 was known as a coronation psalm. It's one of those psalms that would have been sung when the king was coronated as king, when he was crowned as king. And at one point in Israel's history, they would interpret verse 1 as the Lord, Yahweh, God, the Father, said to my Lord, Adonai, another title used for God, but sometimes used for kings, they would have interpreted that as the father saying to the king of Israel, sit at my right hand, the place of honor, until I make your enemies your footstool. But in the development of the history of Judaism and in the development of the interpretation of the Bible as king after king died and, and the kingdom itself was destroyed, Jews began to understand this must actually have some added meaning. This must be like a lot of prophecy in scripture, which refers to an immediate event, but also refers to an event in Christ, a Christological event. And pretty soon it began to be became to be understood that the Lord Yahweh, God the Father, said to the Lord Adonai, the sovereign, that that second reference, Adonai, was not to the king of Israel, but to the king of kings and the Lord of lords. It's a reference to the Messiah. It's a reference to the Christ, the Savior, who was promised and who was to come. Jesus sort of brings that verse forward and says, how can this be? How can David's son also be David's Lord in his mother's day? And there's not a mother in here who has a son who calls their son Lord, who thinks of their child as somehow coming before them and ruling over them. And this is what Jesus is, is drawing on. How is it that David thinks about his son and yet calls him Lord. And this is what they missed in the synagogue. This is what the Jewish persons missed. They, they knew about the Christ, but did not know the actual Christ. They knew some things about the Messiah, but did not recognize him when he was standing right in front of them because they didn't recognize that the Messiah is also God. That the Christ is this Adonai, is this Lord who is not just man, but also fully God. They knew some good things, but they missed the biggest thing. Knowing about Jesus, beloved, is common. Yet actually knowing Jesus is rarer. There are a lot of people who know some facts about him but miss the biggest facts, the biggest truths of all. 
They, they would be glad to say he was a, a good man, to say he was a prophet, to say he was a great leader. But they stopped short of recognizing him as the unique son of God, as the pre-existent God, the, the pre-incarnate God, the, the, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. The question becomes, can that kind of knowledge about Jesus get a person into heaven? Does knowing a few facts about the Lord open up the doors to God's kingdom? I mean, can that kind of knowledge result in forgiven sins? Can it result in righteousness? Beloved, no, it can't. Can't. John 17, 3 says, this is eternal life. That they know you, know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So that salvation isn't fundamentally to be saved, to be forgiven of our sins, to be reconciled to God and brought into his kingdom is not fundamentally something that we gain by the accumulation of propositions. It's not something that we gain by stacking up facts. It's something we gain by coming into a living, breathing knowledge relationship with Jesus himself. We have to know not just facts about Jesus, but we have to actually know Jesus himself. Earlier generations of Christians used to say that we have to accept Jesus as he offers himself in the gospel. What does that mean? But what they meant by that was he, he is accepting Jesus was not a matter of accepting the things that we kind of like about Jesus or we kind of imagine about Jesus. We have to accept that Jesus who really is offered in the gospel and he is no less than God the Son. He is no less than the Lord of all. And we have some Jesus that doesn't sort of climb up to glimpse that glory. And we've got some lesser Jesus than what's offered in the gospel. Because in the gospel, God's only son put on our flesh, lived a perfectly righteous life, which we had failed to do, and then went to a cross to suffer God's judgment, which we actually deserve. He died in our place, the son of God, and three days later was raised from the grave demonstrating that God had accepted his sacrifice, demonstrating that he had defeated death and hell, demonstrating that judgment had been satisfied for all of those who would believe in him. This is the Jesus offered to us in the gospel, the sin bearer, the Lord of lords, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the King of kings who rules all things by his might and his power. This is the Savior that is offered to you, and this Savior can never fail to save. That's why anybody who puts their faith in him will be saved, will be rescued. The Bible doesn't say if you believe in him, you might make it. The Bible doesn't say if you believe in him, there's a good chance you're going to make it. The Bible says everyone who believes in him shall be saved. That's why it's so important that he is David's Lord, that he is 
our Lord. Because as we sang earlier, he hasn't lost one yet. He cannot fail. It's perfect. And he keeps his promise to save. So, beloved, if you're here this morning, I want to encourage you to know the true Jesus. Or just know about him. But notice verse 37. And the great throng heard him gladly with a glad heart actually know him. Be happy that he's Lord. Be happy that he's king. Be happy that he is the son of God, God the son. And as much as there is mystery in that, as much as there is challenge in that, gladly receive it. This is the Jesus that's offered to us in the gospel. If we're going to follow Jesus, we must actually know Jesus. But then that brings us to a second thing. Don't just be a hypocrite. Be genuinely godly. See, our Lord gives a second lesson there, beginning in verse 38. Verse 38, Jesus continues to teach. He gets more confrontational with the scribes. He says, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Notice he begins with beware. It's a warning. Whenever we see beware, we, 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 on a sign, we, we know we need to be careful, don't we? Sign might say, beware of dog. Looking around for the dog, right? A little poodle run out the house and, you know, you feel like you, you are okay. Then the big dog come out the house. You, you got to pay attention to the sign. We, we, we say, beware of electricity. So we know if it's beware of high voltage, don't go over there touching stuff. It's dangerous. It could harm you, even kill you. Jesus warns his listeners to beware the scribes. I find it interesting. Religious people, people who say they worship God, people who get up on a Sunday morning to meet in the parking lot to hear the Bible preach, like us, we ought to be the safest people around to be around. We ought to be the safest people to be around because of our claim to know God and to love God and to love his truth and to love people who are made in his image and likeness. But if we're honest, we have to say that sometimes the most dangerous people we've ever been around are religious folks. That sometimes the sharpest tongues we've ever been pierced by have been in the mouths of religious folks. But sometimes the greatest disappointments that follow uh, an unkept word have been the disappointments of the unkept words of religious folks. Every religion, beloved. Uh, radical Hindus destroy mosques in India. Radical Muslims blow up people in terrorist attacks. Some professing Christians have joined crusades and recently professing Christians attacked the U.S. Capitol. It's sad to say, but every religious person claiming to worship God is not a safe person to be around. That's just the truth. We need, like Jesus, to say more often, beware. Beware of these people. Now, why does Jesus do this? Why does he warn about the scribes here? Well, based 
from verses 38 to 34, we would have to say that these scribes were hypocrites. Those are the particular type of religious people to be careful of, the, the hypocrites, the, the mask wearers, the pretenders. These scribes in verses 38 to 40, they were pretty, pompous, proud, predatory, pretentious people. You know, preachers like alliteration, five Ps. Number one, I say pretty because they like the long roads. You see that there? I say pompous because they like a good show, to put on a show. They wanted everybody to acknowledge them in the marketplaces. I say proud because they wanted the best seats in the in the banquets. They wanted the best seats in the in the in the in the in the religious meetings. I say predatory because look at what they do to widows' houses. They devour, they eat up widows, they take the resources of the poor. And I say pretentious because Jesus says. They like to do long prayers in pretentiousness, in acting, in play. They prayed so they could have an audience. They pretended to be holy. Such people, beloved, pretty and pompous, proud, predatory, and pretentious, when they act in the name of God, are dangerous. Because they actually betray the name of God. They not only hurt others, they also mislead others into false spiritual conditions. They are hypocrites and they create hypocrites. And, and Jesus had his sharpest words, spoke his most sharp truth in the, in the New Testament against such people. Let me give you a couple other examples. Matthew chapter 23, verses 13 and 15. Jesus is in the middle of a long list of, of woes against um, the scribes and the Pharisees, woes meaning judgment. He's calling out judgment on them. He says in Matthew 23, beginning verse 13, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, a single convert, and when he becomes a convert, a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. Matthew 23, 27, 28. Jump down a few verses. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others. You outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You see what Jesus is condemning. These people settled for looking like they were godly, but on the inside were diseased and corrupt. Jesus says they were child of hell. He says they were full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Beloved, the lesson here is clear. We need to beware that we don't follow such people and end up like them. Religious hypocrisy of this sort always ends in God's severest judgment. Back in Mark chapter 12, Jesus says, they will receive the greater condemnation. If hell had levels to it, 
These folks are somewhere near the bottom. These folks are in the deepest part of condemnation. Now, can I make a distinction here? I think it's really important that we distinguish between hypocrisy and inconsistency. Inconsistency belongs to our frail human nature. None of us are ever going to be perfect before Jesus comes back. So there are going to be some weaknesses in our walk. There's going to be some inconsistencies in our walk. We're going to have some ups and downs, some failures, things of that sort. What's really key is if we're dealing with our weaknesses, if we're dealing with our failures, if we're dealing with our sin like Christians. In other words, we are not complying with it, but fighting against it. We're not just sort of going along with the flow, but but we're swimming against the tide. We're swimming against the stream. We are swimming toward godliness, even as we even as we experience our weakness and our limitedness and our failure. That's different from hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is the intentional strategy of trying to look one way outwardly while sort of um, nurturing uh, the opposite inwardly. So you put on the, the pretty robe and you, you put on the church hat. You put on the, and please keep wearing your church hat and your floor shines and whatever. Or come with your snapback and your timberlands. I don't care. But you put on whatever looks religious. And you say all the these and thous. And every once in a while you drop a, a, a Bible quote into a conversation. People don't know you just know three. <laughs> but you learn when to drop them. Right. And you've learned how to speak Christianese. Even the way you say God sounds religious. God. <laughs> but you live in a double life. Intentionally. You, you are feeding corruption and disease and sin and delighting in it. And there's no spiritual life there, really. That's hypocrisy. That, and that's not. That's not Christianity. That's hypocrisy. And, and, and yet the Christian is the struggler who's helped by God in his struggle. He presses toward the kingdom. I'm, I'm not here. Jesus isn't here talking about all of us weak people. And that's all we'll ever be is weak, beloved, until Christ comes. He's not, he's not condemning us for weakness. He's not condemning us for imperfection. He is our perfection. He is our righteousness. That's why he died for us. He's not condemning us for something he came to save us from. But he is condemning the other, hypocrisy. And he says, don't follow those who are hypocrites because we will become like them. So let's put this lesson into the positive. If we are to beware of this kind of religious life and behavior, then we should do the opposite, shouldn't we? We should become the opposite. Instead of being hypocrites, we should be genuine. We should be true. We should have insides that match what we portray on the outside. Let me say it again. We should have insides that match what we portray on the outside. Let me help a legalist right now. Let me help a legalist right now because you will be thinking, okay, I need to show people outside what I'm thinking of in terms of godliness and then I got to work really hard to produce that on the inside. Let me free you. No, if your inside is busted, show it on the outside. There are two ways to have your inside match your outside. You can sort of put on a picture and then try to climb up into it, 
Or you can say, this is who I really am. Let me share that with somebody. Let me suggest a second. It's truer. It's genuine. It's humble. And it's how we get help in our time of need. If, if life ain't all together for us, let that be known. I love Tasha's testimony. Uh, some of you have been around from day one, six years. You might remember Tasha from the beginning of the church. Or you might not. And the reason you might not is because she barely said a word. <laughs> I mean, she was really sort of a nervous little church mouse. Very frail. Natasha coming up here giving high fives and giving everybody a call. You get a call. You get a call. That wasn't her six years ago. And I love her testimony because she's basically telling us, listen, the last year I struggled. My life was busted physically and I had to let y'all know. And, 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 and what's her testimony? God gave me help and he helped me through the church. And now she's standing here to exhort us to trust God and to be transparent in that way. It's a wonderful picture. I think of what Jesus would have us be as he tells us and warns us against following the hypocrites. Let your outside match your inside, but begin with the inside and bring that outside. I say that on biblical authority because we're told that the things that we do outwardly come from the abundance of the heart. It's out of the abundance of the heart that mouth speak. It's out of the abundance of the heart that we do things or don't do things. So whatever is going in your heart, let it, let it be known that we might get help with the heart and then the life begins to conform to the heart. We'll put this into practice. Let me give you, give you three things to apply for those of you who like stuff to apply. Number one, pray. Pray like King David in Psalm 51, verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Pray that the Lord would do his renewing work in our souls. Number two, study. Starting to feel familiar? Study. What does Jesus say in John 17, 17? When he is praying for us, he prays to the Father, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is true. The word that we are studying is the means of our sanctification. If we want to grow in integrity, grow in holiness, grow in genuineness, get into the book. Get into the Bible. Study it with faith. Apply it to your heart in faith. And then number three, act. Pray, study, act. Luke chapter 6, verse 45. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. So we're praying, Lord, create in me a clean heart. Then we're studying God's word to be sanctified and to fill our hearts with his word. And then out of the good treasure of our hearts, we are trusting God to produce the good fruit of a life that honors him, that's genuine and full of integrity. Here's the promise from Proverbs chapter 11, verse 3. The integrity of the righteous guides them. But the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. We're being hypocrites, we're being treacherous with our own soul. It's destroying. But righteousness, the uprightness, the integrity of righteousness will guide us in all of life. So if we're going to follow Jesus, don't know about Jesus, but know Jesus. Don't be a hypocrite, but be genuinely godly. Number three, if we're going to follow Jesus, don't be partially invested. Be all in. 
be all in. That's what we see in this final scene. Jesus takes a position in the temple where he can see the offering play. He does this, the, the, the sort of Greek there gives us the sense that he's done this very intentionally. He has staked out a place where he can see what's happening with the people making their offerings. He's people watching. Mark shows us a, a real contrast, notice, between the, the rich who give and this poor widow who gives. Verses 41 and 42, look at with me, say, many rich, rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. Now, between the rich giving large amounts and the poor giving two pennies, be honest now, which ones do you think got recognized in the temple back then? Well, let me bring it up to date. Between the rich giving to the church, and the poor putting in two pennies. Today, which ones do you think get recognized and celebrated and applauded in the church? Don't say it out loud. James 2 points out, we Christians are way too eager to show favoritism to the rich and to push the poor to the back. And James 2 tells us very clearly that such favoritism is sin. Such partiality is sin. We tend to notice the rich. We love it when some celebrity comes to faith in Christ. We love to see him on television. We, we get happy. We tell our friends, you know, so-and-so is a Christian now. And, you know, two weeks later, they talk about they're going to preach and they, you know, can't spell Bible, but they're going to preach. And, and why is a thing like that happens? Because we have this celebrity culture and, and we love the big names and we love the lights. And we think Christ is honored more by the rich and the famous than he is by the poor. To be honest about that, if that's in our heart. But notice who Jesus notices. Notice who Jesus celebrates in this text. Jesus notices the poor widow. This is what he says. Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. It's a remarkable statement. Jesus says, this poor widow has put in more than all the other rich people combined. And you're like, Jesus, your, your math kind of funny. Jesus is like, that's not what I mean. He says, I want to explain to you in the next verse, they were giving out of their abundance. They were not giving sacrificially. They weren't hurt by what they gave. They didn't feel what they gave. It was an easy thing for them to do. But this widow who has nobody else, she has no husband, has no family, this widow was down to her last two copper coins, amounts to one penny. This widow took those last two coins and put in everything she had. She was all in. They were giving out of convenience. Jesus exalts this widow, not the wealthy. Which are we if we're following Jesus? Are we all in? Or are we Christians who give and act when it's convenient? 
when it doesn't cost us, when it doesn't hurt us, when it's within our means. You see, the rich are not living in this, in this example. They're not giving in a way that demonstrates that they are really dependent upon God. They're giving in a way that demonstrates that they are living within their means and within their own abilities. It doesn't take any faith to give stuff you don't need. I take any faith. It just takes us not being cold-hearted and selfish. But this widow now is giving arguably something she needs, her, her last two coins. And I, I love uh, Money, Possessions, and Eternity. If you've been, any of you read this book, Randy Alcorn is meditating on this text. And he asked the question, how many of us, if the widow had come to us and says, all I have is these two coins, should I give or should I keep it? How many of us would say something like, God knows what you need. And maybe that's how God has provided for you. You should keep those coins and, and buy some bread. How many of us would advise her to give it? I remember the first time I read that, I was, I was convicted. I was convicted because my, my counsel would have been, maybe that's how God has provided for you. You should use that. I would have been encouraging that widow to walk by sight, not by faith. And what Jesus commends here is this widow who is clearly walking by faith, who is clearly depending upon God. She has no one else to depend upon, who is taking her last two coins and put them in the offering because she is all in in her following of God. I wonder how influential how powerful, how effective, how transformative the church of Jesus Christ would be if we were really all in. I wonder how our lives would change individually. Preacher preaching to himself now. Our lives would change individually. How our family lives would change how our corporate lives would change, how our impact in world missions and the evangelism of the community and the serving of the needs of our neighbors, how many steps, giant steps forward would those things take if we pray, Lord, make me like this widow. Give me grace to be all in. Give me grace to live by faith give it all up to you and not to live solely by my own means and what I can see. If we're going to follow Jesus the way Jesus commends and recognizes and applauds, we've got to know Jesus personally. We've got to be genuinely godly and we've got to be all in. Not part-time Christians full time. And not just with our money, but with everything about us. All in. And since it's Mother's Day, can I say just a word here about this text to mothers here, and particularly to those who desire to be mothers, those who have perhaps been disappointed to this point uh, by not having children or not marrying, or you have this desire and I believe it to be a godly desire, but it's yet unfulfilled. To those who are uh, mothers of children they've lost, uh, perhaps um, through miscarriage or, or other ways, 
and so are without children. Please note that this woman in this text that Jesus is commending is described as a widow. Now, according to Matthew, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 16, biblically speaking, a true widow is not just someone who has lost their spouse, but who also has no children. This is what Paul calls a widow indeed in 1 Timothy chapter 5. She doesn't have any family to depend upon. She is, for all intents and purposes, by herself. She, she's single. Having had a husband, she now finds herself single again uh, through his death and without children. The star of this text is this woman, which I want to suggest to you infers at least a couple of things. Number one, sisters, your life is not defined by whether or not you're married. And your lives are not defined by whether or not you have children. Don't get me wrong. It's a good godly desire. I don't want to discourage that desire. I'll pray with you for the Lord's provision in that. I just don't think God wants you to define yourself by those things. That in fact, this woman, this widow, she has been inspiring Christians for over 2,000 years. Her life is still producing fruit. If you leave from this sermon in any way convicted, challenged, encouraged by this woman's life who lived over 2,000 years ago, this woman who had no children is still bearing fruit. You are not on the sidelines. You are not on the bench because you don't have children or because you're not married. No, 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 no. You, you, you may actually be, like this woman, the most useful person to the Lord's agenda in the world. And God may be pleased to bear fruit through you in this way for centuries to come. Please resist the culture's temptation to think that your worth and value as a woman and fulfillment as a woman is defined by whether or not you marry and have children. It is not. It is a good desire, but it is not to be worshipped. It's a terrible God. It's an idol. So, sisters, I just want to encourage you. I, I know that Mother's Day is hard for some ladies. It's, it's happy for others. I know that sometimes if we don't have children, we're able to enter into rejoicing with those who do. And sometimes it, it just, you know, it hurts. And I know the Lord knows that. I want you to see that what he commends is your all in this. And he can use you for centuries beyond your life, whether or not you have children. Trust that. Lean into that. Hope in that as you wait for the Lord's blessing in other ways too. Beloved, following Jesus is hard, but it's worth it. He never promised that following him would be easy. He promised us it would be rewarded. And if we put our hope in him, trust in him, and follow him, if we know him as our Lord and Savior, and if we genuinely seek after him, and if we are all in, holding nothing back, loving him with all our heart, our mind, our soul, our strength, well, that life will never come back fruitless. That life will never come back barren. That life will never fail to produce reward. This is where he challenges our faithlessness both in this life and a hundred thousand million times in the life to come. Be all in, beloved. Give yourself over to Christ fully. Seek to know him and love him.
just as he knows you and loves you and look for his coming. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage of scripture, what you have led us to hear this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would transform us by what we heard. Those who are not yet Christians, we pray that you would give them grace to repent of sin and to believe in Jesus as their God, as their Lord, as their Savior. We pray that you give them grace to follow him. Those of us who are Christians who know the ups and downs of the Christian life, who have perhaps walked with you for years, Lord, we pray that you would sustain us. Don't, don't let our spiritual lives grow cold. Help us to keep our zeal, our spiritual fervor. Grant that we would be stirred up for you and, and that we would be people of integrity, that our inward lives would, would match our outward lives because we're honest about our inward lives. Grant the Lord that we would hold nothing back from serving you. Not two copper coins, not, not our time, not our physical bodies, not our energies, not, not, not our minds. Grant that we would give it all for you. We lay it down for you just as you lay down your life for us. That we would serve you just as you served us in bringing us safely home to the Father. So whether we are coming to Christ this morning for the first time or whether we have known him, for years, Father, by your spirit, help us, we pray, to follow him faithfully until he comes or until we come home. In Jesus' name, amen.